0: Kathy Joseph of Kathy Loves Physics. And I've just been chatting for about five minutes with Patrick Kelly there we go. about the history of the X-ray. And I was saying brilliant things, which you totally missed. But let's see if we can recreate it. But before we get to that, let me just welcome you to the slightly awkward introduction to my first podcast and first live stream. And it's called A Bit of Historical Context. This sounds very familiar to Patrick and me because we just said it. No, We're that's great. We're you know what, playing <laughs> a little bit of the history to someone who is an expert in their field so they can understand it a little bit better and a little bit more depth from where it came from. So Patrick, will you like to introduce yourself again?
1: This is going to be fun. Hi, Ooh. I'm Patrick Kelly. I'm a YouTuber. I have two channels. The first one that your audience might like is just my name, Patrick Kelly, I teach, or I, I tell stories from the history of medicine, and with a particular aim of telling us how we got to where we are today with certain things in medicine. The second one is named Corpus, C-O-R-P-O-R-I-S, that's where I teach anatomy and physiology. And they're both just so much fun to do. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you today and get the whole story.
0: Yes. <laughs> ex- I really enjoy making YouTube videos too, but this is so much fun. It's usually so, and t- me, myself, and I project. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have a team of... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, me <laughs> I can't afford that. Right, right, right. Then people are like, congratulations to your team. I'm like, okay, I'll look in the mirror and say, mm-hmm. good job.
1: To- <laughs> yeah, I'll get that to accounting. <laughs> yes. Well, my accounting never
0: gets a pat on the back. <laughs> oh, so man. today we're going to talk about the history of the x-ray. And I know it's something you particularly like. We are just talking beforehand about how you know a lot about how it was used and how it opened up worlds and I feel like the history is fascinating but most people start in late 1895 when Röntgen, whose name is hard for me to say, discovered x-rays and named them but not like why was he playing with an x-ray machine before there was an x-ray and also how did you power the x-ray machine? Like what did they do to do that and how did that all come about? So I thought I would start the story, as I like to start stories, with Michael Faraday in 1831. And 1831 was when Faraday made a pretty famous experiment where he figured out that if he changed the current in one coil, he could induce current in the second coil, even though they weren't electrically connected. And he realized that he induced current in the second coil because it moved a little compass. But he couldn't get it to make a shock, even on his tongue, And he wrote sort of disappointingly, I couldn't get it to make a shock. And the 1831 thing was really important for various reasons. But for today's thing, the reason it's important is a couple years after that, an Irish priest named Nicholas Collin read about it and said, huh, I'm going to try to give myself a shock. what else are you
1: going to do with this stuff what does this faraday guy know what has he ever done for for electricity
0: no it was (laughs) more of a like uh, this is really cool let's see if i can change this device to sort of up it so he he realized that it worked better if both coils were insulated and on top of each other and the second coil would give a big shock if it had more coils around it and he could give himself a really good shock that way it's just, now that you call that a step up transformer for electricity but at the time they didn't know anything like that they just thought it was electric magnet electromagnet that could give really good shocks and he actually okay. made this little machine where you turn a wheel because you'd only get a shock every time it was turned on or off so one person would spin the wheel and they <laughs> Like 300 times a second. He was like, this is the best. Was that the application too? Was just kind of the novelty of the shock? The novelty of the shock and for medicine. They immediately said it would cure diseases. And they started to be this cottage industry of like these electric things. Actually, Edison put out this thing called Inductorium, I think is what he named it. And he said, it's fun for the family and helps with rheumatoid arthritis. Do you know the shocks help with rheumatoid arthritis? I don't mean no, to throw I mean, you a curveball. No. So what what time period was this again? You said like 1850s. So, no, the induction machine by Callen that was like 1834.
1: Oh yeah, uh, so this 36. is like the peak of eclecticism in medicine. So this is when people were trying out just the weirdest stuff. This is kind of like when homeopathy is becoming more popular and hydrotherapy and mesmerism, which is like a fascinating little enclave of a story in in medicine. So people were just trying whatever because. <laughs> was as good as modern medicine, as biology-based medicine, because we were, like, we didn't have anesthesia. And not quite. That was, like, 1840s. And then, like, antiseptic surgery was still, like, many decades away. So, like, some of the stuff that, as long as you didn't do harm, that you weren't bloodletting someone, then you probably had a pretty good chance of looking like you healed someone. Right. So, yeah. Compared like, to it the work, regular. Probably not. Yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, I should. And, like, Edison's in doctorium was, like, the 18. 18- 70s, but it was okay. still continued w- way later. There, uh, I just went to this museum in Washington State called the Spark Museum, and they have all sorts of old stuff there, and including all these weird put this on your head and give yourself shocks and make yourself feel whatever. All this was sort of weird biological stuff that they did for medicine, and I'm using yeah. air quotes with that. So, anyway, once it started to become more popular for medicine. There was money in it. And there was also people using it for science experiments. And one of the most powerful induction coils or induction spark machines that had a bunch of different names was made by this guy named Rumkorf in France. He actually won an award and won some money. So if you look at old equipment, you might see Rumcorf coil, which is a hard thing to say. And that's where it comes from. Rumkorf coil. Yeah. yeah. People would say, oh, I took the Rumkorf coil, even when it wasn't made by the guy, sort of like Kleenex. It became the brand name for the high voltage device. Rumkorf had a friend who was, and I just looked at the date, 1858. Rumkorf had a friend who was a physicist in Germany named Plucker, Julius Plucker. I think his first name is Julius he thought they would be a good idea to use this high voltage to see what happened in a tube if you evacuated as much air as you could and put in a little bit of gases of different elements. Okay. So he goes to this glassmaker named Geisler who builds the device and he does it and it glows. He says it's incomparably beautiful. And this was the precursor of the neon light bulb. I
1: was going to ask, that sounds just like if it's neon in there, it's glowing. Okay, cool.
0: Yeah, it's like a neon light bulb, but he did it with helium, not helium, they didn't know helium existed then, but with hydrogen and with different elements and it glowed different colors. But, and so Geisler started a small business selling these things as like novelty items and they are incomparably beautiful if you look them up. But Plucker was more interested in the fact that not only did it glow, but you could move it with a magnet Mm -hmm. and light, you can't move light with just a bar magnet. But this one, you could. And he's like, this is weird as hell, basically was the conclusion. And, but he, sorry,
1: dumb, mm-hmm. dumb question. No. When you're saying that like, you could move light, so you have the, the tube mm-hmm. and then a magnet on one side, for instance. Is it no, literally, just, this, again, dumb question. No. It's moving the
0: light out of the tube? Yeah, you put the magnet near the tube, and the beam of light bends. What? Okay. Yes. Have you ever seen the old things with the old CRT televisions, the old big thick televisions where someone puts a magnet on the television and you get these weird rainbow patterns on the screen? I haven't seen that, no. See, now you have to look that up. Don't do it with an old CRT television because it kind of could damage it for future Mm -hmm. use. But if someone else does it, it is crazy magical that it moves with a magnet. It really is. And that's the other thing that just freaked them out because light doesn't move with a magnet. You can't divert it out of its path with a simple bar magnet, but you could with this kind of light. But he didn't do much else with it. And then 10 years pass, and he had a former student named Johann Hittorf. And Hittorf was looking at vacuum pumps and realized he can improve one. So he improved it and then he's like, huh, I should go back to those tubes and see what happens if I just take out as much air as possible, forget the adding anything. I think actually he pumped it, he put in a little bit of gas and then he pumped it as much as he could is my impression of what he did. And what he found was the whole thing basically went black except for the far end from the negative electrode. And if you put something in the way, you could see the shadow from the negative electrode. And if you put some phosphorescent item in there, it would, or fluorescent, it would glow in the path and then sometimes make a shadow on the back and you could move the shadow with a magnet still. So this was eventually called the cathode ray because Faraday had said where the electricity comes from is called the cathode. He named it the cathode. And so they called since it was clearly coming from one side, they called it a cathode ray or a cathode ray two. That's why your old TVs were called CRT tubes, cathode ray tubes. Yeah, that's where it comes from, if that all makes sense. And so he does that, and the world goes, eh, eh, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, cool trick, but I don't really see how we're using it.
0: Right, uh, that's, that doesn't seem interesting to me at all. Fast forward another 10 years, and I'm 1879 now, and a chemist named William Crooks. And William Crooks was very famous, supposedly, Quite a good speaker, a very outgoing. After he gave one talk, his friend wrote him a letter that, like, your talk is the subject of a thousands conversations over breakfast. I'm like, yeah, he was he was <laughs> well regarded. He was the president of every everything, including every paranormal thing, because he was really into the paranormal. And he was very interested in light. He looks at this tube and he goes, uh-uh, I think it's not light at all. I think it's a fourth state of matter, solid liquid gas and cathode ray tubes. And he he says, this is my proof. It moves like it's a negative charge, So I think it's negative atoms of this fourth state of matter. And he even put like this paddle wheel inside the tube and got it to move with the beam. Have you ever seen the thing where they have this sort of four flags, and they're black on one side and white on the other, and if you put them in the sunlight, they start spinning? That was Crooks. Oh, sure. Crooks made that one, too. And he had all these great and inaccurate, but not completely inaccurate, theories of what was going on with them. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, every physicist in the world, or the world who read about him, would bought a Crooks tube and start playing with it. Okay. Huh. It wasn't that the the problem needed to be solved. And so everyone like was
1: putting their attention on it, just that this dude was famous and everybody kind of wanted a piece of, of the problem that he was proposing.
0: That's often the case. It's not enough to have an idea that's quirky and interesting. You have to have something so that people who are important are interested in it, (laughs) either the speaker or someone else, because otherwise everyone just goes, "Eh, okay. It's weird, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of weird things we don't understand. Okay, I'll mm-hmm. just put it in the category of weird things I don't understand. Whereas Crooks put it as this is a fundamental change in physics. Mm-hmm. And you can see it with a tube. So everyone's like, okay, let's figure this out. This is great.
1: Okay. So it really was a perfect storm that got a bunch of scientists' attention on this, on this topic.
0: Right, exactly. Okay. And what Crooks didn't know is he was making x-rays. Mhm. Because when he put the super high voltage on there with very big vacuum, when it hit something, when the beam, it turns out it's a beam of electrons, spoiler alert, when it hit something, it made x-rays. And in fact, he did an experiment where he shined the cathode ray tube on a piece of platinum to make the platinum melt. He didn't know he was making a very good x-ray machine because the higher elements make more x-rays. And he actually had some film he had bought, got developed by his experiments. And then he sent it back and he said, I want a refund because you gave me bad film. It was already developed and they gave him the refund. And then years later, he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I developed (laughs) myself with the (laughs) x-rays. So that was that. So he was making x-rays, but he had no reason to see x-rays because he was looking at this bright thing in this. Tube with his Mm -hmm. eyes, and eyes can't see x rays. So he had no reason to know that he was getting eradicated right then. And everyone Mm -hmm. who picked up one was getting eradicated with x rays. And in fact, after the x ray was discovered, a whole host of people said, Oh, wow, I see what that picture was. I was taking an x ray. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So now we're, uh, that was that. And then one person who was interested in crooks. So we have the x ray machine but we mm-hmm. don't have the x-ray machine of how Röntgen figured it out. Okay. So that has to do with a German man, young German man named Heinrich Hertz, whose name might sound familiar. Yes. <laughs> and in 1882, Hertz was inspired by all these experiments by crooks to say, well, okay, if it's a new state of matter, that's negative elements, if I put plates across it, where one plate is positive and one plate is negative. If these are negative charged things, they should be attracted to the positive, repelled by the negative, negative. Mm-hmm. it should be bent by these plates, just like it's bent by a magnet. So he does it, nothing happens. He's like, mm-hmm. n- nope, n- not a new state of matter. It's just a weird form of light. And then a few years after that, he's showing his laboratory to his fiance. And he's explaining how the high voltage thing, the Rumpkorff coil, Mm -hmm. will make bursts. By this time, it had all sorts of elements to it. So now it would run on its own. You didn't need someone spinning it. And also, it would make bursts of high voltage alternating current. And he was explaining this to his fiance. And his fiance said, hey, I thought you said that vibrating electricity is what makes light. And he's like, no, no, no. This is vibrating way slower than visible light. This one's vibrating like 50 million times a second. Visible light is like 450 trillion times a second. So no, you can't see it. And he's like, oh, but maybe it should make an invisible wave of light that I can maybe capture on the other end of the room. So he adds antenna, he adds, I mean, he doesn't know what kind of antenna to do. So he just puts sticks and balls on the end. And then catches it on the other end of the room with a a ring with a little gap in it, so get a spark there. Okay. And so that's how he discovers radio waves, and that's why frequency is named in hertz. Was that the moment? Like, and yeah. he called these these vibrations like uh, hertz. They were. He just said, "I found a wave, and I've proved Maxwell correct." Okay. James Clerk Maxwell, of Maxwell's equations, and Faraday, uh, correct, who inspired Maxwell, but. They were first called Hertzian waves, and it was only till the 1920s that they started calling on them radio waves. But yeah, the same thing. Yeah, we don't usually think of radio as invisible light. We usually think of it as sound because you turn mm-hmm. on the radio and you hear the sound. But it's the, I usually tell people it's like if you have an old record. The record isn't made of sound. The record is made of wax or vinyl or whatever. It has bumps in it for the sound. Same with radio waves. It's not made of sound, but it has bumps in it depending on the sound. But that was f- for the future. So he get, uh, Hertz gets an award for, I mean, everyone just loves radio waves. He goes to England to get an award, meets Crooks, and they get into a polite but loving conversation about what mm-hmm. cathode Ray tubes are. And he goes back to Germany, he's like, okay, I'm going to prove Cro- Crookes is wrong. I'm going to prove it. So Crookes metal melted platinum. I'm going to melt gold, which is easier to melt, but very thin pieces of gold with unfocused. So I can really measure how powerful this thing is. I'm not going to focus it. I'm going to make it a plane beam and see gold. And what he found was that the cathode ray tube went through the gold, which he was totally shocked about. Like, and in his mind, completely proved that it was a wave of light wave sure. because light can go through materials without breaking it, particles can't. So, it's got to be a wave, right? Just a mm-hmm. weird wave that moves with a magnet. That's it. Um, and but at the time, he was starting to get sick. He died very young from blood poisoning, which I don't know what that means when you die young from blood poisoning at the time because they probably called that for everything sure (laughs) i mean like it's just like he's sick we don't know why he died there you go sometimes when i study people from this time but he was he was like 36 years old It Hmm. just it makes me very sad because i liked him i'm a little crazy uh so but anyway he was getting sick so he asked his assistant this guy named philip leonard to do some experiments And Leonard, if you've ever heard of the Leonard tube, that's why. Okay, we're almost there. Okay, because (laughs) Leonard tube was the reason that you could discover the X-ray. Because otherwise you're looking in and looking at the, you need something that's dark and covered. And so, what Hertz told Leonard, hey, let's do this with a piece of aluminum. We can have the cathode ray tube go from one area to another and see if we can deal, do stuff with higher, not a full vacuum or not a Mm -hmm. mostly full vacuum. And so, he decided, why don't I just put a window to the air? I'll have a cathode ray tube hit a small piece of aluminum and see if I can see it on the outside of the tube. So, what he did, he built the tube, he covered the whole thing in thick cardboard, very dark room, and he put a piece of fluorescent material on the outside and saw a little spark on the outside as he moved away from the edge. Huh? So and the, window. the reason he didn't see x-rays is because his fluorescent screen was composed of elements that were pretty low, and x-rays tend to go straight through those. So
1: it, by, by elements that are very low, what do you mean?
0: I mean like, uh, uh, very low mass. So okay. if you look at the periodic table, hydrogen is one and helium is two. That means they have one proton, two protons, a little, you know, on, 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 and on. I'm not trying to get myself in trouble here because <laughs> I can't list the elements in the periodic table. Sure. But You're you Like the lightest elements. The lighter elements tend to be both if the beam hits them, they produce very few X-rays. And they tend to be transparent to X-ray, which is why... When you go get an x-ray you get a lead thing on you not aluminum mm-hmm. because okay lead sense. is far heavier and it will block it and aluminum will just go straight through right to you okay. if that makes any sense yeah, so now we got it it was all set up for him but he just had the wrong screen to see it mm-hmm. and then hertz died and Leonard took a bunch of time off to help write his, autobi- uh, not autobiography, but like put together his scientific papers. And he, Philip Leonard became the sort of spokesperson for his former boss, if that makes any sense, which took up a lot of his time. So it kept him, and then he got a job, but it didn't have a good research area so he couldn't do anything and it took him like three years to start working on it and by that time runkin had already discovered x-rays okay don't feel too bad for him he turned into a giant nazi <laughs> a yeah that does happen that does happen unfortunately yeah but not uh but so that leads us to runkin now we finally get to the x-ray Yay! all Yay! right here we go okay, okay
1: now what so- year are we in right now
0: so we are in, actually, we're in 1895. The time between when Röntgen decided to do these experiments and when he figured out the X-ray and when he published it is like, he's decided to study it in October. He discovered the X-ray in November. He took the first X-ray of a human hand in late November. In December, he publishes it. And then, and then by
1: the next year, there were a bunch and of. And by other next journal articles. January
0: fifth yep. or sixth, all as he put it, all hell broke loose. Yes,
1: that from the from the application and clinical side of things,
0: accurate. All yeah. hell broke loose. So, Rankin, uh, he was fifty year old physicist, and he was sort of known locally as a very honest, calm, quiet. He was not a superstar like Crooks, probably more like Hittorf, just the quiet, calm, only local people knew him, but he was well respected in his small circle of acquaintances. And he said he'd been following what Hertz and Leonard had been doing for a long time. And he thought it might be fun to try the experiment again with a different screen that was made of heavier materials. I know that
1: Röntgen was German, correct? Mm -hmm. And all these other scientists, are they also coming from the same geographic, like, are they all German too?
0: It was mostly a German-English thing. So Crooks was English, and actually a bunch of them were German. Plucker was German, Hittorf was German, Hertz was German, Leonard was German, and Rankin was German. uh, So that's why the German side of it was very much like, this is a new form of light. And the English belief, although there were Germans who, it became sort of a a nationalist pride to believe in certain philosophies. Like, Mm -hmm. you're good German, we gotta believe that it's a new form of light. And Rankin believed it was a new form of light, the the cathode ray itself. He's like, Mm -hmm. because of these amazing experiments by Leonard, we know it's a new form of light but then he discovered another new form of light. So I'm getting ahead of myself. So Uh, (laughs) he decides to do this experiment. He builds all sorts of tubes, including the Leonard tube, which is his most important one, because he wants to study how the cathode ray can tunnel through the material and how far it can get. So he has the cathode ray tube where it's hitting an aluminum window and he covers the whole thing with dark material, turns off all the lights, turns on the machine, And as he's reaching for this phosphorescent sheet, he realizes it glows on the side of the machine, not through the window. He's like, what the heck is going on here? Like, this is insane. Barely makes it through this window. How can it go through this thick cardboard, which cathode rays could not go through thick cardboard? He said it was so thick, it would block like a welder's lamp. Oh, wow. (laughs) there's no way it should go through this. Mm -hmm. And then he moves it towards the window where it hit. And he's like really glowing. Mm -hmm. He's like, and then he finds if he moves it with a magnet, he can move where the thing is glowing. So he's like, it's created when the cathode ray hits the wall. And he found it was created if it hit glass, if it hit aluminum, if it hit anything. He didn't know that it creates more x-rays if it hits platinum. But he found Mm -hmm. it was quickly found after him. And he says he immediately, immediately knew it was something different. Mm -hmm. And so he starts, which is amazing. Most of the time you don't get eureka moments, but this one was a pure eureka moment. So he starts picking up things to see how powerful it is. He's standing there in front of the window with his screen Mm -hmm. and he picks up like a deck of cards See if they go through the deck of cards. Yep, they go through the deck of cards. Picks up a piece of aluminum. Yes, it goes through the aluminum. He picks up a book. Yes, it goes through mm. the book. He pieces a piece of wood. All these things. And he picks up a piece of a lead. And it's a lead mm. disc about a couple inches big. And it doesn't go through it very easily. So he stands there for probably around 10 minutes holding this disc up waiting to see if it will make any go through the lead disc after a certain amount of time. And while he's waiting, he notices that he can start to see the shadow of the bones in his own hand.
1: I was going to ask, like, was he actually holding it up like like that sign? Oh,
0: cool. Okay. That's how he discovered the medical x-ray is by holding Ah. it up. And he goes home that night and he's like, he said, I've discovered something. I think people are going to say Runkin has gone insane. <laughs> like, this is crazy. This new invisible light that's super powerful, but can make things glow. I mean, it just seemed crazy. And he was an amateur photographer. So he had mm-hmm. photographic equipment. So he's like, let's see if it works on photographs. So he takes in photographs all wrapped up, puts something on top of it, turns it on, turns it off, develops the film. And he's like, yep. It can be recorded. So he takes photographs. And I gotta say, aside from one photograph, all the other photographs are more dull than you can possibly believe. This man had no flair for the dramatic. He's like, here's hinges <laughs> on the door. Here's a wood box with a piece of metal in it. You're like, really? And these are and these are photos that he's taking, or is he x raying like all these X-ray, like, everyday objects? X-ray photographs of these ordinary objects. Oh, okay to prove that they go through things. And so he does all of that and he decides he needs an x-ray of a human hand. So he asks his wife to come in. This x-ray machine was not very good because it was hitting aluminum or glass. Mm-hmm. So she had to hold her hand there for 15 minutes to yep. get an x-ray of her hand. And I'm sure you've seen this, right? This x-ray oh, of like her hand. Picture. Yeah. And it's amazing because they did the x-ray. You can see her bones all the way to the center and you can see the giant ring on her hand. Mm-hmm. And it felt like every other time they took an x-ray for the next like five years, they made sure that the person had a ring or something in their
1: hand. <laughs> for, for, I feel like for context for the, the viewers who haven't like seen this photo before, it doesn't really look like what you would think of as a modern x-ray with the black background and the white bones popping off. Mm-hmm. It's a yellow background. And then the bones and ring are black, like they're they're yes. dark. But that, it, it's very clear, like, oh, that is a human hand with phalanges and a ring around it. It's a striking photo.
0: It is a striking. It's sort of ghostly looking. It's not what you're expecting. I'm not sure if the yellow is just because it's a really old photograph or if it mm-hmm. it is actually yellow. It was yellow back okay. then. It's mm-hmm. un- unclear to me. So he publishes it without pictures, though because it wasn't particularly easy to have photographs in publications at the time at all. Like, they had something for drawings, but he didn't include any drawings either.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking even to, like, the, the publications around the 1918 and Polenza pandemic, they wanted to picture, like, some of the, the germs that they were seeing under the microscope, but mm-hmm. they couldn't do a slide. Like, they couldn't take a picture of a slide and print that. They mm-hmm. didn't have to just, like, painstakingly draw what the microbes looked like. So, yeah, how would you publish... A photo of the x-ray if you couldn't photocopy it. I see I see the challenge.
0: No. Yeah, it was and just for technical papers, like physics papers, they weren't even bothering with that very much. Like mm-hmm. newspapers would have a more advantage on that score. But so he publishes it and everyone ignores him. So what he does is he sends out 20 copies to friends and former students and famous people, and some of these have copies of the photographs he took. He just Mm -hmm. made extra copies of the photographs. And one of the people he sent it to, and I forgot to write their name down and now I've forgotten their names. But he one of his students got this and right before a Christmas party and he reads it and looks at the photograph and is just blown Uh. away, right? And tells his friend who's there. And his friend is also blown away. And his friend says, can I borrow these? And he says, sure. And friend turns out to be the son of the biggest publisher, newspaper publisher in Vienna. So they go and they, they literally change the front page of the newspaper, although they didn't have enough time to make a drawing or a photograph. Sure. They did, and it's the most hilarious thing. Actually, my it's an old German. So my brother-in-law translated it into English for me because he used to speak old German with his grandmother. And I have it on my website, www.kathylovesphysics.com. You can actually, I'm sorry about the plug, but I think the original paper is super cool. It's like, this sounds like a story from Jules Verne, but it's a serious study from a serious physicist. Do you remember what the the headline was or? uh, Sensational discovery was the name of it. Trying to imagine how you
1: would describe this without using pictures. Like it must just sound like an alien invention that that wouldn't be clear until you saw it. So I'm imagining like that inspired curiosity in everyone who read that newspaper. Like, I've got to go see this X-ray now. Right. I've got to go well, see what they're talking about.
0: The other thing is that almost every physicist had a crook's tube and mm-hmm. an induction coil. In fact, um Rutherford was working for a guy named JJ Thompson in England. And he recalled later, he's like. When we heard about Rankin's discovery, everyone broke out their old crooks tubes and started making x-rays. And then individual people would drag their doctors to physics departments and Mm -hmm. say, here, give me an x-ray. I think J.J. Thompson was saying something like they started an area to give x-rays because they had so many visitors demanding x-rays right now and then yelling at their physicians like, I told you I still had metal in that knee. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic.
1: Oh, my God. It was... Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, so so one of the things that happens, like, from the medical perspective after this first X-ray, people start hearing about it. A couple academic articles come out. People start realizing, like, yep, we can use it in a diagnostic fashion. But I always wondered, like, how did they build some of these first X-rays? But it makes a lot more sense, though. Like, everybody's got these crooks tubes, right? Crooks tubes? Crooks tubes, Yeah. OK, so if people are already familiar with like the ingredients and they can put together the, the machine more easily. I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. But
0: no, no, it, it's already that's the common. thing. There isn't a lot more to it. It was super simple. You took out a Kirks tube, especially if you had one with like platinum in there, and you power it with this induction coil, and you got an X-ray machine. That's it. The problem was the medical doctors didn't have it. Physicists did. And like Mm -hmm. people, there was all these letters from like doctors begging, please give me an induction coil. Please, does anyone know where we can get this? And all these companies sprout up and certain people who had one would start like traveling around, giving x-rays at fairs and stuff. There's this great story about this man who was saying a woman came to him and said, excuse me, could you secretly do an x-ray of my fiance?" Uh, about his um (laughs) i want to see that everything works before we get married and he's like i'm sorry lady but there's no way to do this in secret yeah (laughs) well one you can't do it in secret and two even if you could we can't tell anything from it yeah Hmm. people went crazy like Like I said, there was bad poetry. There was people. uh, One of my favorites was some newspaper article that said, now that we have the x-rays that can see the bones, people will generally give up clothing in the summer. I'm like. Yes. And that's what's happened. There we go. We told the story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So people didn't do that, but there was a freak out. Oh, my God.
0: People made money selling x-ray proof underwear. People made, you know. Things don't do X-rays on people in the street. Or there's a, mm. a old silent movie called The X-Ray Fiend, which shows this couple, and then some nasty person takes an X-ray out to see them without see their bones. Ha ha ha! And then it has like an edit, so they're wearing outfits with like paintings of their bones, and it's shocking. Oh, and then the guy figures out what he's doing <laughs> and punches him. It's you know, it's delightful. I love that stuff.
1: So it seemed like people were reacting just like any other big technology. Like, yes, it's cool and exciting, but it's also like freak out because this is new and we don't know what the repercussions are yet.
0: And freaking out about, of course, the exact wrong things. Like, what does it mean for our privacy versus is this dangerous? Because they had no idea about it being dangerous. And actually, one of the first people to realize it was dangerous is someone who's usually blamed for this and he shouldn't be i think he should be lauded for this and it's thomas edison Mm. now lots of people get mad at thomas edison for various reasons some of which are quite legitimate but we have this tendency if we get mad at one thing we tend to get mad at everything (laughs) and in my mind yeah thomas edison and x-rays was an example of him doing something really good for society but it's usually twisted. So what happened was Edison heard about the X-ray. you will like, this is crazy. And he's like, okay, if the X-ray will make this fluorescent thing glow, I can just get an X-ray machine, code it in fluorescence and make an X-ray light bulb. What a great idea.
1: Okay. So it'd be like this glowing light bulb that wasn't emitting visible light, but...
0: No, his idea was it would emit invisible light and then the invisible light would hit the fluorescent and change it into okay. visible light, sort of like fluorescent light bulbs do. They produce mostly ultraviolet. And then the fluorescent, the reason it has its name is it's coated in this fluorescent stuff that absorbs the ultraviolet and emits visible light. Okay. But if you get a little bit of ultraviolet from your fluorescent tube, it's no big deal. You get a bunch of X-rays from your X-ray light bulb, not great, <laughs> but of course no one knew this, right? So he immediately goes, okay, the screen that Run can use, it takes forever to glow. It doesn't glow very well. So he gets all his muckers, which is what he called his employees, to just basically go through every element combination that they can possibly think of. It was just a giant chemistry experiment where they're just mixing things together. Like, how does this one work? How about this one? How about this one? There was no logic or rhyme or reason. They just did. And they found something that same year that worked really well. And he immediately sold it for doctors as a fluoroscope is what he called it. So he'd seen those old photographs where our pictures or drawings where there's a doctor and there's the patient and they're just standing there looking at the screen. That's the screen. They bought it from Edison, the fluoroscope because that material glowed way better. You wouldn't have to wait 15 minutes to see the bones in your hand Mm -hmm. because that would be annoying. And then like three weeks later, he files the patent for the x-ray light bulb and he's playing with it and playing with it and playing with it. And then he realizes that he injured his eye from doing this. And he's like, you know what? I don't like x-rays anymore. They're not safe. This is about 1901 by the time he decides it's not safe. But he has an employee named um, Daly. Now I'm blanking on this first name. John Daly? I don't know. Daly. Let's call him Mr. Daly because I've forgotten his okay, first name. Sure. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, Daly was t- wanted, according to him, and who knows how much to trust him, wanted to keep on experimenting. But he started getting more and more injured, especially his hands, because most people, when they're doing x-rays, would test it out on their hands first. And so he started getting legions on his hands and he eventually his fingers had to be amputated and his hand had to be amputated so what does he do he switches hands he switches another hand and then that hand needs to be amputated and by mm-hmm. 1903 edison and daily make this big newspaper article that says x-rays are terrifying <laughs> and I the and those exact Daly. words they said it was good for helping surgeries but It is dangerous and he didn't want anything to do with them, which and he said and he did pay for Daly's medical care and paid for him to basically be taken care of, which you think is the bare minimum. But in the early 1900s, that was unusual in the early 1900s. You didn't have to do that. And also by doing that newspaper article, he is weakening his own profit margin because he right. just made his x-ray light bulb completely useless. No one's going to buy that. And his fluoroscope, less popular, because he, the person who invented it says this is dangerous, only use it for surgeries, if you see what I mean. Now, how much was he paid attention to? Probably not very much, because people really liked it. He also, by the way, warned against radiation and radium, He said, don't touch that either. That seems scary, too. And that one was really ignored. Mm -hmm. And actually, did you know that radiation and radium or well, the uranium was radioactive, was discovered because of x-rays?
1: So, okay, this is going to be one of my questions for you. There seems to be a gap then between, okay, we got the Röntgen ray. He was calling it a Röntgen ray at that point, right? It was not an was it an x-ray?
0: He, uh, Ronkin called it an x-ray and then like two months later, Ronkin was convinced to give a big talk by the Kaiser himself and he gave one talk and that was it. But at this one talk, he got a standing ovation and everyone declared that they would call x-rays Ronkin rays. So that's why in Germany and in many countries it's called Ronkin rays, but in other places it's called x-rays I think America liked x-rays because we just liked the the sort of x part seemed very good for advertisement. So I think we stuck Got with it. that. Okay. So then my the the question is and this x-ray then
1: somehow becomes the field of radiology, which I assume like radiation is involved. So what hmm. happens? How does this transition happen?
0: The short version and I'm going to get into a little bit more next week with someone else is that because of the fact that X-rays make fluorescence glow. A guy in France started studying uranium fluorescence and phosphorescence to see if they could make X-rays and discovered that uranium can make things glow all the time. Okay. Even when they're not fluorescent. And then Marie Sklodowska-Curie figured out, okay, if uranium does it, maybe there's other things that do it and discovered a bunch of other, other elements that... We're radioactive. She calls it radioactive. She Mm -hmm. discovers all sorts of things. And eventually they discover that radioactive materials emit three kinds of things, alpha particles, beta particles, and gamma particles for the first three letters of the Greek alphabet, alpha for A, beta for B, and Mm -hmm. gamma for G, which is the third one on the the list. Um, And the gamma particles are act exactly like high energy X-rays, but they come from the nucleus itself, vibrating or changing, but it's the same electromagnetic wave, same sort of thing. And those are the most powerful rays that you get from radiation. They uh, have the most penetration. That's why you have to build the super thick lead walls for your fallout shelter, if you see what I mean. Got it, okay. They Mm -hmm. are kind of an X-ray, but they're not from the same source, if that makes any sense.
1: Sure. And so then that is the inspiration for calling this new, f- or for calling like diagnostics with X-ray radiology. Uh,
0: yeah. At the, in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, anything in the air was called radio. Thus, oh, okay. okay. Radio waves, radiation, radiology, radioactive. All of them had that root of radio of like in the air. And physicists often call things radiation when it just like light, right? Anything that's going in the air is sort of a form of radiation, which is very confusing to biologists and to doctors. And you're like, what do you mean radiation? I'm like, yeah, the light bulb radiates light and heat. And I'm like, no, that's not what I meant. (laughs) It sometimes gets confusing because the... um, we pick the language before we understand it fully, and then sometimes it gets extra confusing that way.
1: Okay, that? understood. Yeah, that, that reminds me of how, like, physicians got their name. Like, uh-huh. why are physicians physicians if they do not practice physics? Ah. And it's because just, like, science prior to the 1700s, everything was just called physic, right, like right. singular physic. So, and those right. people who practiced physic were called physicians. Oh. And then eventually physics became its own field, and so we needed a different name for all of you, and <laughs> that became the difference between physicists and physicians. Ah, uh-huh. <laughs> same re- yeah.
0: same thing. Which is always changing. Uh, ah, yeah. yes, and always confusing. So that was my whirlwind history of the X-ray, and Not I meant- bad. Hey. Only 50 I'm only under an hour. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Uh, so at that
1: point, like we we left off the story then. Early twentieth century, yes, we have x-rays. people are are starting to use them, and we're starting to get an idea that maybe they're not like the greatest for us to be constantly exposing ourselves to x-rays
0: mm-hmm. and but and then there were sort of three branches of x-rays at that time. There was mm-hmm. the physics branch that was sort of studying how x-rays worked, which were vital for many developments in physics. There was the public response the public love of x-rays, which faded quickly because it was replaced by love of radium and like we'll do radium Mm -hmm. everything. Although it was still a little bit like um, my mom said that there used to have this thing at shoe stores where they allow you to get live x-rays of your feet to prove that your shoes fit, but really it was to attract you to the store. And supposedly they're still in stores up to the 1970s, but... That's wild. That's way too long. I know. No isn't way. it crazy? But I mean, it wasn't very high much radiation. And also I read, but you might know better, that feet are among the more impervious to getting cancer from radi- X-rays versus other body parts. I don't who knows? It might be a line. But they said the biggest danger was for the shoe salespeople because they were there all the time and also leaning down next to it. So it's not always their feet that were getting radiated. But yeah, so that was the public part. And then the last one was the medical part. And the medical part is where I sort of lose the train (laughs) of like, once they know how to take x-rays, I'm like, yep, they know how to take x-rays and then I'm lost. But I feel like That's when the medical community suddenly went, okay, we have more methods than just how do you look? What does your pee look like?
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly that. Like, in the first time that we tried to record this, Mm I mentioned that, like, like, Western medicine really didn't have anything for diagnostics that let you, like, look into a live human body. Like, yeah, you could use bodily fluids and learn some clues from that. Um, blood chemistry was starting to become a thing in, right. I'm not just using the reference point of like when the x-rays came out, 1895, early 20th century. And we had the ability to do some blood tests. Urinalysis has always been a thing like for thousands of years. Um, but otherwise the only real tool that we have in the clinic is the stethoscope, mm-hmm. but the stethoscope looks like way different. Like the very first ones were just like a long tube, like a long wooden tube. That you would put up to somebody's right, right. I've seen that. Yeah, that itself is a is a fun story too, because it was made out of uh trying to be modest and trying to, you know, put mm. some distance between your your face and a young lady's bosom.
0: Oh, that's yes. why yeah, they invented yeah. it. Oh, to help exactly. With them. It was out of
1: modesty, and as that's it turns nice. out, like that's a really good tool to have to be able to listen to somebody's heart, to be able to listen to somebody's lungs, and that was a huge deal back then because like. What was everybody dying of? Like lung infections a lot of the time, pneumonia, tuberculosis, all these things that, would, that you could diagnose on, on listening to how it sounds in somebody. Um, stethoscopes evolved a little bit from going from the, the long tubes to eventually having like the winding rubber hoses. But otherwise, like there wasn't a ton uh, at the time of Rankin. This comes out and immediately people are like, oh, cool. If you can see bones, then the obvious thing to do diagnostically is to be able to diagnose fractures. Right. So how do you imagine people would have diagnosed fractures before x-rays? Mm. Sorry, I got you right as you were taking one.
0: No, maybe feeling it from the outside? Gently? You feel it from the outside. Yeah, Very
1: that's, gently. That's super painful for the yeah. patient. Sometimes people would, if it was a long bone, they could try, like, pulling it apart. And if you could wiggle it separately, then that was, you know, a broken bone. But at the same time, like, that's super painful for the, the patient. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a ton. It was a lot of just, like, rest, try to stay off of it. But this is one of the reasons why you have like deformed bones and people not healing correctly, people walking around with limps and canes. Um, and so, this X-ray becomes a great diagnostic tool for being able to say like, yes, here is exactly where the fracture is. Here's where we can cast it. Here's where we can immobilize. And so that can affect both diagnosis and treatment. And so once that becomes a thing, that's obviously super applicable in World War One. Mm -hmm. where we're getting some of the very first mobile
0: x-ray machines too i was about to say did you know about the curie mobiles tell me about the curie mobile so in france so curie was actually from poland but Mm -hmm. she went to france to get her education and then she met and pierre curie and she ended up marrying him and living there and then after she won her first Nobel Prize right about the time she was winning her second Nobel Prize. Her, well, after she won her first Nobel Prize, her husband got run over by a horse and buggy and died, and she was devastated. And then she started an affair with a married man who was separated from his wife. And of course, this is the late 1800s, or, sorry, early 1900s. wasn't particularly easy to get divorced, so officially separated, but not divorced. Sure. And when the public heard about it, they freaked out out, like threw rocks through her windows, attacked her, attacked oh, wow. her children, full page articles about how she was a horrible person and probably Jewish because, you know, that was the go-to insult and maybe a communist or who knows what. And mm-hmm. so she was very tempted to go back home. But she didn't know what to do. And she finally goes back and stays in France. She's convinced by some friends, but she kind of has a slightly lower profile. And then World War 1 breaks out and she wants to defend France and Poland. I mean, she wants to defeat people mm-hmm. to defend people. And what she decides to do is start this whole range of mobile X-rays. I think they called them Curie mobiles. Her and her oldest daughter, I think, ran these things. All women run and they would go to the front and do X-rays for the soldiers. And after that, actually the French public decided that they liked her again <laughs> but i don't think she did it as a pr thing i think she did it because she was motivated to do it but su- mm-hmm. there was sort of a she was super popular and then suddenly everyone hated her because you know fame is fickle and then suddenly loved everyone loved her again but i i love that they called it the cure curie mobiles or something like that
1: yeah and it's wild because like these i imagine it is the entire mobile is the mm. x ray machine. Like, right. it's not just like a thing that you sneak into the back. Like, even in the 1930s, I'll, I'll send the photo to you so you can put it on your website or, or whatever the case is. Um, but it, in the 1930s, we start getting these public health campaigns that use these like giant trailers to kind of remind me of the, I don't know if you had these growing up too, but like, it was a room that the fire department would bring around on wheels. And then they would simulate what happens when like smoke fills the room and you got to crawl under and everything, <laughs> but it's these, I mean, the size of these trailers where you would have people in they'd get a chest X-ray, they'd get screened for tuberculosis or whatever. Cause again, that's been a big right. public health concern for a long time. Um, and then people would walk out, but this it's still by the 1930s, these enormous uh, <laughs> trailer size vehicles. So it makes sense. That, yeah. World war one, it is the entire like Curie mobile.
0: Curie movie, exactly. uh,
1: yeah, that's uh, so good. Oh, man, but backing up a little bit, I guess, okay, fractures, mm-hmm. something that we can easily see and diagnose. The real big breakthrough comes with the chest X-ray. And mm-hmm. this is something that, like people have seen, right? Like it goes from usually like clavicles down to the abdomen. Right. You can see lungs. You can see heart. You can see any of the empty space in between. And so there's some stuff that you should see on a chest X-ray. Some stuff that you shouldn't. And so anything that's different, you can finally get a look into a living person and figure out what's wrong with them. And then hopefully, based on their mm-hmm. other symptoms, you can figure out okay, here's how we do treatment. And so this is another thing that becomes a huge deal during World War One, uh, or I should say during World War One through 1918. Are you are you familiar with the story of 1918 influenza pandemic? Misnomered the Spanish flu. I'm trying to use the the proper terminology. I mean, I know a little bit. I, okay. So the lo- the the longest short of it is still one of the deadliest pandemics in history, and um, it was caused by an influenza virus. But scientists had not discovered viruses yet, so they were mm. looking for bacteria that could cause uh, this like this massive swarm of symptoms. And it was mostly young men mm-hmm. and soldiers who were getting this disease, which is unusual. Usually, influenza attacks right. like you know elderly people without great immune systems. And so something was happening. Something was wrong. Something was wrong. And so when people would die, like diagnose the soldiers or any people like with influenza afterwards, autopsy, look inside the lungs. Oh, look at all these bacteria. That's bad. Clearly this is caused by a bacteria. But hey, wouldn't it be a great idea to be able to diagnose somebody with influenza while they're living so we can figure out treatments to keep them to keep them from dying? Right. And so the chest X-ray takes off as a way to diagnose again, like uh-huh. tuberculosis. we'll come back to that one. And influenza.
0: And influenza—that well, that makes sense. That it goes from mm-hmm. sort of a novelty slash injury, like a break, to right. let's look at the lungs, partially because of the influenza. That's awesome. Correct. I mean, Correct. not influenza yeah. is off- awesome, but the that, that's right,
1: valid. right. But the idea that we have a tool for finding it, yeah. Tuberculosis after that too was just so wild. because like it seemed late eighteen hundreds it seemed like we had such good strides against tuberculosis. It was the first germ discovered within Robert Koch's germ theory. Mm-hmm. Which has become this, you know, that became the thing that really, like, became modern medicine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the ability to create vaccines and create antibiotics, once we take antibiotics right. and effective treatments. And so, like, tuberculosis seemed like, okay, this is going to be the first one that we attack. But, like, vaccines and effective treatments for, for TB didn't really happen over the course of the the early 20th century until antibiotics so there was Mm -hmm. that gap of like 50 years from like the 1880s to the 1930s where we were good at seeing tuberculosis and diagnosing it but not at treating
0: it yet and then we didn't know what to do we're like yep you got something bad sucks to be you we can say
1: like yeah this is tuberculosis like we could diagnose the difference between like diseases like between respiratory disease too It, it was the like Feeling helpless, of like, well, I guess we'll just send you off to Arizona so that you can go live in peace, <laughs> die your own way.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. Thank you. Uh, I think it's, we've been over an hour. I probably should cut this coast. Yeah. I did want to say a few things. First, I wanted to say that next week I am talking with someone you know, a woman named Alexis Dahl. Am, am I saying her last name right?
1: Yeah. I, and, and personal plug for her. She is fantastic. Go subscribe to her YouTube channel. Everybody who is in the com- or in the comments now, you want to be here for oh, that stream. Alexis is fantastic.
0: She's, I think her c- called Alexis in Michigan. I might have the mm-hmm. state wrong. Anyway, she does geology stuff. So we're going to go into the history of radiation and how we got to the age of the earth. So that should be really cool. Very cool. Very different. Little less disease-wise, but... <laughs> Really cool. And oh, also, I'm just going to plug myself here because that's what I do. Um, (laughs) I wrote a book called The Lightning Tamers, which has stories like this. Most of this stuff got cut out of the book and is going to be in my third book. But I have a lot of other interesting stories. And it will be available for pre-order probably like Friday or maybe next Monday. So I'm super excited about that. And um, go to my website, kathylovesphysics.com. And Patrick, you want something to plug? Plug something. Plug away.
1: All the all the channels are in the description. Yes. Please uh, go to the that history nice. one. That's the one I'm trying to grow.
0: Okay. Yes. Go to his channel. He has great animation. It's really impressive, and I was I was a little intimidated, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. this was fun. Okay, this is great. Now I just have to figure out. Okay, bye.